Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I uh, read a story not too long ago about a case of road rage, that there was a guy who was driving um, down the freeway, and at the last minute, from the far left lane, this guy just came barreling across four lanes of traffic, cut right in front of him to catch the exit and to take the exit off, off um, the off-ramp off. And, and the guy that got cut off, he was just so irate, you know, just so angry at this guy to cut him off. He actually followed him down the off-ramp, blaring his horn the whole way, just laying on the horn the whole way down the off-ramp. And when it got to the stoplight at the end of the off-ramp, he actually pulled up alongside, started yelling, started screaming, started making all kinds of hands and finger gestures that I can't talk about in church, (laughs) not realizing that right behind him was a cop. (laughs) So the cop hit the lights, you know, and gave him a little blast on the siren, and light turned green, and he pulled him over off to the side, and the cop came out, went to the side door of the car, and he says, okay, get out, get out of the car. I said, what, what? He says, get out of the car, put your hands on the hood. But I don't know what I did. He said, put your hands on the hood. He said, but it's not against the law. I didn't break any law. It's not against the law to use my horn. It's not, it's not against the law to scream. It's not against the law to yell. He said, I didn't do anything wrong. You can't do anything. He says, I'm arresting you. Put your hands behind your back. Put the cuffs on him. Stuck him in the back of the cop car. We got on the radio. Had a long conversation with headquarters. Came back. Opened the door. Let the guy out of the back of the car. Took the handcuffs off. And he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. It's just that I saw the way that you were acting, and then I saw the Jesus fish sticker in your window and the bumper sticker that said, this car powered by prayer, and I just thought, this has got to be a stolen vehicle. <laughs> oh. The heart of Christianity is about life transformation. It is really all about life change. And the expectation ought to be, the, ought to, uh, the expectation ought to be that somehow my life in Christ is going to affect change in the way that I act, the way that I behave, the way that I interact with people. That that's the expectation. Sadly, all too often it's not. That is not the expectation. And you and I have probably, both of us, I know I have encountered plenty of Christians in plenty of churches over the years who have many, many years of church involvement and church experience. But if you look at them, they are spiritual infants, at least when it comes to life change. The Apostle John was really concerned about this. We started this series a couple weeks ago, and and we've been looking through the book of 1 John, the the first letter of John, realizing that he is at a very old place in his life. He's near the end of his life. He's the last of the apostles, probably, and he is is passing the torch, torch to the next generation of followers. And he's saying, these are the things that I want you to give yourself to. If nothing else, make sure that you do these things. And so the series that we've titled Simple Faith Again, let me remind you, this is not because it's going to be easy or effortless. But what John is saying is this is the stuff that's essential. This is the things you need to concentrate on. This is where your focus needs to be. And what he is very concerned about through this letter is our behavior. He is very concerned about how we live out this life with Christ. And so in 1 John chapter 3, we're going to read beginning in verse 9. 
he writes these words. And I'm reading from the New International, uh, the Interna- New International Reader's Version, by the way. So it may not be exactly the way that it reads for you. He writes these words. Those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his fellow believer is a murderer. And you know that no murderers have eternal life in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. John is saying, folks, this is where you got to concentrate. This is what needs your attention. We're talking about spiritual growth, but he talks about it in the context of something much larger. He talks about it in the context of community. And he's saying, there's a simple truth that you need to understand about spiritual growth, and it's not what you think it is. The simple truth about spiritual growth is that it must be measured by my capacity to care. That's the measurement. He says in verse 10, this is how we will know who the children of God are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John is saying there is a way to measure progress in your life with Christ. There is a way that you can measure your spiritual growth and maturity. There is a way for measuring it, but you got to use the right measurement. And to kind of illustrate that this morning, I brought a few props. Everybody know what this is? Those of you who bake, okay, this is a measuring cup. You know what it is. It is used to measure liquid or or sometimes solid for the purpose of maybe baking a cake or something. It is a measuring device. It is a measuring device to measure quantity, okay? There's another measuring device. Anybody know what this is? It's called a tape measure, okay? Tape measure is useful in measurement for carpentry, okay? You can't use a tape measure to bake a cake. Well, maybe you could if you kind of use it to stir with, but it's not going to be the measurement that you need, okay? It is not the right measurement for doing that job. You need this tool for a different purpose. It's another one. Everybody know what this is? It's a blood pressure cuff. Yeah. Okay. You use this to measure your blood pressure. Well, I don't. But my doctor does, and I have no idea how he does it or how this works, but that's what it says. It measures your blood pressure. You put the thing on, you, you, know, you pump up the little ball here, you get the reading on it, it tells you what your blood pressure is like, okay? It is useful for that purpose. It is useful for measuring that particular thing. Here's another one. 
the dreaded bathroom scale. <laughs> yes, a lot of moans and groans this time of year right after the holidays. You all know what this measures, so we won't even go there because it's just too depressing. But it's used for measuring certain things. It's used for measuring weight, okay? It is a measuring device to measure a specific thing. One more. Because it is, after all, football playoffs. <laughs> this is a measuring device. Anybody want to know what this, know what this is? First down marker, yeah. It is used to measure first downs, okay? Now, you could use a tape measure to measure first downs, except it would be a little hard because it's only a 25-foot tape, okay? So it won't quite do the job. It could, but it really isn't made to do that. This is made to do that. There are all kinds of different measuring devices, and they are specifically designed for particular measurements, if you don't use the right device, you won't get the right results. John is saying in this letter, there is a way to measure your spiritual maturity, but it's not what you might think it is. See, all too often, we have used the wrong measurement to measure our spiritual maturity. We have usually used measurements that have to do with religious activity. We measure by how much I attend church services, or maybe Bible knowledge, or, or maybe the length of time that I give in a quiet time alone with God. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are all absolutely essential and vital and important when it comes to spiritual maturity, but they are not the measurement. They are the means to the end. The measurement is not how much Bible knowledge you have, although Bible knowledge is absolutely essential. It is not how much you attend church services, although church attendance is absolutely essential. It is not how much time you spend alone with God, although that is essential. But it is not the measurement. The measurement, John says, is our relationships. And when we use the wrong measurement, we will make the wrong measure, and we will have the wrong results. I grew up in church. Pretty much from before I could remember remembering I was going to church. And, and so I grew up in, and the church that I grew up in had a whole graded Sunday school program. And, um, and it was a good program. And one of the things that we did um, in, in, in Sunday school um, as we got older and to help us better utilize our Bible and know how to look up references in the Bible, we had these things that were called sword drills. Okay, some of you who grew up in church, you're kind of nodding your head. Oh, yeah, I remember those things. Okay, the Bible is a two, sharper than a two-edged sword. So, so to use your Bible, you need to have a sword drill. So this is what we would do in Sunday school. Um, the Sunday school teacher would have a list of about maybe five, six, seven verses that he was going to use in the lesson. And so to help us learn how to look up these verses, we would start with holding our Bible, you know, like this in front of us on one hand, and he would give us the reference like John 3.16. And then he would repeat it, John 3.16. And then he would say, charge! And we would, and the first person to get it would stand up and raise their hand, and they would read the verse. Now, I was really, really good at sword drills. Quite honestly, I was the best in my class <laughs> at sword drills. No, honestly, you're laughing, but it's the truth. I was so good, they handicapped me. Really, everybody else got to hold their Bible out here in front of them like that. I had to start with my Bible under my chair. That's how good I was at sword drills. <laughs> Here's the problem. 
I was really good at sword drills, but sword drills were not helping me love my brother or sister. In fact, it could be accurately stated that they actually probably worked against my ability to love my brother because it was a competition, and I got to beat you, and if you beat me, I don't like you. So a great exercise and a great way to learn how to use my Bible. But when it comes to discipleship and growth, not very good. If you use the wrong measurement, you will get the wrong measure. John says, use the right measurement. Use the right measurement. And the measurement of my spiritual growth and maturity is my capacity to care. Notice he says, it's a two-dimensional thing. He says, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. There's a two-dimensional side to this whole thing. And it's not an either or. It is both and. It is right living and right relationships. And if I am living rightly, but I'm not relating rightly, I am not mature. And if I'm doing really good at relating and loving, but I'm not living rightly, I'm not mature. He says it is both. The measurement of my understanding of God's word ought to work itself out in my relationships with other people. Specifically, it is shown in the way that I care. He says, dear children, don't just talk about love. Put your love into action. Then it will truly be love. That's how we know that we hold to the truth. The measurement of growth and maturity in spiritual things is love. And the measurement of love is my ability and my capacity to care. So the questions I need to be asking myself in terms of my spiritual maturity is not how much time or how much attendance or how much knowledge I have. The kind of questions I should be asking myself is how quickly am I to respond in help to somebody? When somebody asks for my help, how quickly am I to say, yes, I'll be there. I will be up there for you. I will help you out. Or is my tendency to say, well, gee, I'd really like to help, but I'm kind of busy right now. I don't have time for that kind of stuff. You know, I just try me again some other time. Or how well do I listen to other people? Am I so consumed with telling my stuff that I never take time to listen to somebody else? See, those are the questions I should be asking myself when it comes to spiritual maturity. Do I take the initiative or do I wait for somebody to ask me to do something? What is the quality of my relationships? What is the depth of my love? How do I demonstrate it in the ways that I care? Because John says that, that is the measurement. The measurement is seen in my capacity to care. Now, if that's the case, as John says it is, and I believe that is the case, then it only makes sense that if it's going to be judged by my capacity to care, then I've got to put myself in community so I have relationships in which to demonstrate it. And so the second thing, simple truth about spiritual growth is, is that it develops in the context of community. I've got to be in community. Because if the measurement is love and caring, then I've got to be around people that I am loving and caring. That only makes sense. And of course, that's what John says. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we share life with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, makes us pure from all sin. Walking in the light, as John describes it, growth and progress in my spiritual walk 
is measured by my relationships. Walking in the light deepens my relationships. And my life together with other believers is what fosters my walk in the light. That's how it works. And it all centers around the grace of God. That's what he says. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that makes us pure from all sin. It is in these grace-filled relationships with one another that we grow. And it's all centered around God's love and God's forgiveness and God's compassion and God's grace. He says that's where it is. That's how it happens. Doctors Cloud and Townsend um, wrote a book a number of years ago entitled How People Grow. They are both clinical psychologists and, and they are both Christians. And they've taken a look at growth and maturity in people, particularly in believers, and, and, and done a study to figure out what causes and what fosters growth. And one of the things that they found over and over again is what truly fosters growth in an individual is the relationships and connections they have with other believers. That's how it happens. Because it's all centered around grace. You see, and grace is not something I can give to myself. In fact, that's what they write in their book, How People Grow. They write, by definition, grace is something we cannot give ourselves. It comes from outside of us as merited, unmerited favor. To fully experience grace in our hearts, we have to go where it is at, where it is at. And God has chosen to put it in other people. For growth to occur, it must include experiences where hearts are open with each other. I said last week, growth sometimes happens in the difficult relationships that we have, but they also happen in the nurturing relationships that we have. The opposite, by the way, is also true. When my walk is one on the edges or on the fringes or in the dark, that's when I have a tendency to hide. That's when I have a tendency to withdraw. And that's why community is so essential. Because when I hide, sin wins. When I hide, community is damaged. When I hide, I remove myself from the very people who can be extensions of God's grace to me. I remove myself from the support network that I need to truly grow and overcome sin. See, that's how it works. And it has from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing they did when they heard God coming to spend time with them, they ran and they hid. And when God asked them, where are you? <laughs> it wasn't because God didn't, couldn't find them. He was calling them out of hiding. And I said, I, I had sinned. I was ashamed and afraid. And so I hid. And mankind has been hiding ever since. Hiding from God. Hiding from one another. See, as a pastor, I want to be open. I want to be forthright. But there's also a part of me that wants to hide. Because <laughs> I, I, I want people to think that I am better than I truly am. And so I have a tendency to hide at the same time that I want to be known. <laughs> and I think that's true for every one of us. The thing is, we need each other to grow. That's why community is so important. There are benefits to being plugged in in community. I find support. I find belonging. I find structure and accountability when I'm involved with other people. In the context of community, I discover grace and forgiveness lived out with each other. 
in community, there is grieving and there is healing together. It all happens in relationships with other believers. All of those things happen out of our relationship. A number of years ago, uh, a movie came out entitled As Good As It Gets. And, and the main character in this movie is played by Jack Nicholson. And, and he's kind of a cantankerous old guy, and he's, he, you know, he's got psychological problems, and he's supposed to be taking medication to take that, take that but he doesn't like taking the pills, and, and he pretty much doesn't like anybody around. Everybody, he, he's enemies with everybody in his apartment building. He's just nobody likes him, and he doesn't like anybody else. But he develops this relationship with this waitress. It's played by Helen Hunt. And through that relationship, he is drawn out into something different. And there's a particular scene in the movie that just really hits on what we're talking about this morning. So I'd like you to watch this clip and, and, and see what happens here. Okay. Now, I got a real great compliment for you, and it's true. I'm so afraid you're about to say something awful. <laughs> Don't be pessimistic. It's not your style. Okay. Here I go. Clearly a mistake. I've got this, what, ailment. <laughs> My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is... That night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um... Um, all right, well, uh, you were there. You know, you know what you said. <laughs> well, my compliment to you is... The next morning, I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Deep, life-giving relationships have that effect on us. Make me want to be a better person. See, that's how God designed the church. That we would stir in each other this desire to be a better person. That I don't want to be the one that messes up community. <laughs> I don't want to be the one that hurts someone else. I don't want to be the one who passes by and doesn't care about what's going on in somebody else's life. Good, strong relationships, healthy, life-giving relationships in community, in the family of God, in the body of Christ, ought to make each and every one of us want to be better people. That's how God designed the church. And there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. And I'd like you to kind of think of your of your life and your relationships, maybe in terms of concentric circles. 
okay? Because there are different types of friendships, different types of spiritual relationships that will foster this. And at the biggest circle, on the outer circle, um, that's kind of the crowd circle. There's a lot of people in there. It might be a couple hundred people in that, in that circle, okay? It's what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings and we worship together and we share together and we shake hands and just kind of touch base with each other, okay? You need that circle in your relationships. That is life-giving circle. When we come together and we sing together and we worship together and we learn together and we study together and we interact with each other, something of God happens in that moment, And you and I need those kinds of relationships. But that is not adequate in itself. Because you can't possibly really know 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600 people. You just can't. So there's another level of friendship that you need. And and you might consider this a group of maybe 12 to 20 people. And generally when that happens here at Northgate, it happens in what we call our home life groups. That there's a smaller group of people that you really begin to develop a relationship with. You really begin to share life with one another. And this is absolutely vital and essential to your growth because community is, 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 is the way that God grows us. And he does it on all these different levels. He does it in the big, large gatherings, but he also does it when you share life with one another. And I will be honest with you, when we first started Northgate, small groups was a key thing, and we said, this is going to be whatever we do, we're going to keep this small group feel here, no matter how big we get as a church. And, and for the, most of the year, early years of Northgate, in fact, for probably the most 10, 15, first 10 to 12 years of Northgate, I was involved in a small group. And then as we grew and we developed a pastoral staff, I kind of excused it by saying, well, the pastoral staff, that's my small group, okay? That's who I hang out with. Those are the people I interact with. The trouble was it wasn't truly a small group. It was a smaller group of people, but it wasn't a life, it was life-giving, but it wasn't, it wasn't the level of connectedness and accountability that I needed. And so about three, three and a half years ago, I got plugged back into a small group. And I want to tell you the level of care and interaction and growth and maturity and just being there for each other that happens in my small group, I would not trade that away for anything. That has become a priority for me. I need it. And what happens in that group as we share life together, and the members of our group have gone through all kinds of stuff. I mean, it just, I could tell you stories, but I won't. (laughs) But I hope that you've got someone and a group of people like that for you. And if you don't, get plugged in to a home life group. In fact, in your bulletin on that welcome page, if you've never been plugged into a small group here at Northgate, or maybe you were for years and now you've just kind of taken a hiatus and you haven't been plugged in and it's time to get plugged back in, on there there's a place, I'm interested in small groups. And if you will check that, we will get you plugged into a small group. If, and we've got, we've got groups that meet every night of the week. And if we can't find one that'll fit you, we'll start one. You know, we'll help you get together with a group of people. Now, this is gonna take time. It takes time to develop those kinds of relationships. But when you commit yourself to a group of people like that, that's what happens. That's what happens. And then there's an inner group even still. And everybody needs a group of about two or three really close friends. The kind of people that you can really be yourself with. And they know you better than anybody else. And they still like you. (laughs) Or at least they're committed to love you, whether they like you or not, okay? (laughs) But you need those kind of friendships. Jesus did. Jesus had crowds of people that followed him, hundreds of people, thousands of people that followed him. 
But he also had a select group of 12 that he poured his life into. And in that group of 12, Peter, James, and John, he had a small group still of about three that he really poured himself into. And you need those kinds of relationships at every one of those levels. John alludes to it when he talks about it. In fact, there's a part in chapter, um, chapter 2 that you kind of maybe read through if you've been reading through First John in the last week or so, and you kind of go, well, what, where does that come in? That's just kind of like something stuck in the middle of the letter. But it's really important stuff. He writes this letter, and he says in 1 John um, chapter 2, beginning of verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. And then he goes chapter uh, 2, verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then verse 13 and into 14. I'm writing you, young people, because you have overcome the evil one. You are strong, and the word of God lives in you. And what John is doing is he's saying, every one of these kinds of people are necessary in your life. You need New believers, young believers, because there was, a, there was a, an enthusiasm and an excitement and a, and a joy of discovery and, and, and an excitement and of, of, of experiencing the forgiveness of God for the very first time that just, that just resonates in new believers. And you need those people in your life because you need to be keep, constantly keeping in touch with the joy of your own salvation. You need those people in your life. They're important. John writes to them, he says, I am specifically writing to you. And then he goes on, he says, and I'm also writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you because you have known him from the beginning. And he's addressing those who are mature in the faith. And he's saying, you have the experience of knowledge of God in everyday life because you have experienced him through all the different stages of life. And you have learned to trust in him and rely on him and find his faithfulness at every stage. And you have a level of maturity that no one else can get any other way. And you have something to offer. And then he, then he relates to young people. He says, you young adults, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. You are strong, and the word of God lives in you. He says, you are vibrant, you are growing, you are progressing, you are learning, you're moving forward, you're overcoming obstacles in your life, you're discovering the power of God to overcome those temptations, overcome those difficulties, and you are experiencing it firsthand. And what he is saying in this letter is, every one of those people are important in the church family. And you need to be connected with all those kinds of people. Your circle of friends ought to include an assortment of every one of those because you need those people in your life. And I would say what you should look for, particularly in that group of two or three, you ought to have one who you can count on as a spiritual father or mother, a mentor, one that you can look at and you can say, that person, that's what I want my life to look like. The relationship that he or she has with God, that's what I want. That's the level of maturity that I aspire to. That's what I want to see happen in my life. And you need to be connected with a mentor that has that to offer to you. And then you need someone who is your peer, your spiritual peer, if you will. Someone who is doing battle with these things the same way you are. And they're struggling, but they're learning and they're growing. And the insights and their experiences are things that you can rely on and things that you can grow from and you can share together. And together you can grow. You need peers, spiritual peers in your life. But you also need to be connected to someone who is younger in the faith or new to the faith or just seeking and just looking. And it's your job for them to help bring them along. John says all of those are important. That's what the Christian community is supposed to look like. Those kinds of relationships. Find a mentor. Find a peer. Find a younger believer that you can help mentor along as well. Because ultimately... 
third simple truth about spiritual growth is that ultimately, my growth is going to reflect the character of Christ. That's what I want to see happen. I want to become more and more like Jesus. John put it this way, if anybody obeys God's word, then God's love is truly made complete in that person. Those who claim to belong to him must live as Jesus lived. God expects obedience from us. He expects us to bring our lives in line with his word and with his teachings. But notice, it is not the obedience of a trained animal, okay? It is not the obedience where God cracks the whip and holds up the chair and you jump, you know? That's not the kind of obedience that he's talking about. The kind of obedience that he's referring to here is relational obedience. And there's a very, very big difference. It's not measured by my ability to perform. It is measured by my accepting and embracing and, 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 and grabbing into my own life the principles and teachings of Jesus Christ so that they become my very own. See, it's relational. That's what he says. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. And he goes on and says, then all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. He says, it's relational obedience. It's the obedience that a parent wants from their child. Now, we are at the end of our child-raising stuff, okay? We're, we're, we're done. We're finished. The, the door is closed. They're out of the house. I've done my job. I'm done, okay? But as our kids were growing up, it was my job and my wife's job to nurture them and to discipline them and to bring them along. Not so that they would be trained animals in our household but so that we would get to this blessed day which is called empty nesters (laughs) where they would become self-disciplined and fully functioning and loving adults that was our goal see every parent knows that I mean there's times you just want to obey just because you like cracking the whip but more often than not your real goal is that they would become people in their own right And so you want obedience from them and discipline from them so that they will become self-disciplined and obedient themselves to these principles. You want them to make these things their own. You want them to become their own character. And so it is with God and us. God wants obedience from us, but not just doing what he says to do, whether we like it or not. He wants us to embrace this life that he has offered to us. He wants us to make this character our very own character. And the character of Christ begins to emerge in us as a family trait. And every family has them. Every family has family traits, physical, emotional. Every family has them. Our family trait ought to become that of our Heavenly Father, of the example that we have in Jesus Christ. My family matters to me. The name Jensen matters to me. So does the name Christian. It matters to me because that's my family name. It's my adoption into God's family. And I want the character traits of my own life to reflect my father. I want it to show out because this is not blind obedience. This has to do with trust. This has to do with understanding. 
and faith and character. And that's what God is trying to work. I want people to see in me a little bit of Jesus. It is my prayer for this church that God, the people see in us as his people a little bit of Jesus. That's what God is doing in this world. I don't want to be the one to mess up. I want to be the one that helps point people to say, this is what God can do for you. This is what he's done for me. Now, none of us have arrived. None of us are there. But the good news is, that's where we're going. We've already been adopted. We're already his children. And he says, over the process of this growth and development in community, we're going to take on more and more of our father's traits. Or he put it this way. The truth was shown in how Jesus lived. It is also shown in how you live. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. He says it's like the sunrise. Sun's not quite over the horizon yet, but it's starting to get lighter. (laughs) And eventually it's going to break through those clouds. And the life of Christ is going to be more and more radiant in your own life. And that's what simple growth is about. That's what simple faith is about. It's what caring and community is all about. And the good news is, God's bringing it about. You bow your heads with me. And again, as we close, just take a few moments for where does this hit you? How do you respond to this? If you take nothing away, understand this. As a Christ follower, you cannot change on your own. This life transformation will not happen by your own effort. The transformation is the work of God's Spirit in you. But you can do things to put yourself in a place and with people that will foster that work of God in your life. And that's what community is all about. Give yourself to spiritually nurturing habits reading scripture, understanding scripture, studying scripture. It's important. Involvement in worship on a regular basis is important. Time alone with God is important. Give yourself to those things, but with them also place yourself in spiritually nourishing community. For some of you this morning, it might be a first step of taking that very first step to say, Lord, I trust you with my life. I'm giving up. I'm doing it by myself. I need your grace. I need what you did on the cross to be effective in my own life. I need your forgiveness. I need that life. Many of us here have already made that choice. Maybe it's a commitment to plug into the church family. Say, I'm going to give myself to this group of people. I'm going to commit myself here and say, these are the people that matter. These are the people that are going to help me grow and nurture in my walk with Christ. Maybe it's plugging into a small group. Maybe it's simply finding a mentor. But make a decision about this. Do something with the information. And see what God will do in your life because of it. Lord, thank you for the relationships you have given us with one another and with you. Thank you for family, spiritual family, where we can belong, become, and grow, and learn, strive together. And I pray that you would stir in each of our hearts a greater desire for that kind of community, that kind of relationship, and that you would give us the boldness to take the first step 
to experience it in our own lives. That as we walk from this room, we walk with a greater understanding of what you're doing and what you want to do and a greater commitment to be a part of it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song in closing. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.